Lord God, our Father, You're so merciful. Lord, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon this place. I pray that You would speak through Your servant and that You and only You would be glorified. Lord, I pray that through my testimony that each and every person would catch a glimpse of your power and how you can transform lives. I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit and his convicting power would descend upon each and every one of us. I pray this in the lovely name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I'm a son of Korean immigrants. Any Korean immigrants here? That was a joke. I'm a son of Korean immigrants. I'm an elder brother, I'm a husband, and I'm a father. I'm a former professional cellist, and I'm a corporate executive. Yet, as important and defining each of these facts is to my identity, there is one fact which is even more important. The most important fact in my life is that I am the survivor of a chronic and deadly disease. Millions around the world have this disease. It runs in families and is passed on through heredity. It is a silent killer. There is no known cure for this condition absent a literal miracle from the Lord himself. I am a survivor of congenital Christianity. Congenital Christianity is a spiritual condition, which in some ways resembles true Seventh-day Adventist Christianity, but which is, at its core, superficial and lacks an authentic saving relationship with Christ. To make sure that we share a common understanding of this condition, I want to share with you a non-exhaustive list of symptoms. Would you like to know what the symptoms are? Very well. At least 20 of us want to know. For the rest of you, you can listen in. I would encourage you to interact. So here are the symptoms. There are 10 of them. Number one, you avoid talking about your faith because you don't want to have to explain what you believe because you're a little bit embarrassed by it. Two, you know that Saturday is the Sabbath, but come on, what's the big deal? It's just a day. Three, you've heard that we have distinctive Biblical beliefs about death, hell, and the sanctuary. But you're not quite sure what they are or why they even matter. Four, you hear people talking about the spirit of prophecy. But you're ambivalent about it. Even though you've never actually read any of the books. Five, those beasts on the prophecy seminar flyer look strange and bizarre to you, and you've got no clue what it all means. Six, you think that megachurch down the street is way more fun, way more interesting. They've got great programs. They've got a great band. They've got donuts and coffee. You think that megachurch is way more interesting, but you feel kind of guilty that you think that. Seven, You abstain from all unclean meats, except for pepperoni, bacon, and shrimp, (laughs) because they taste so good. 
and you abstain from all alcohol. Okay, well, a little bit of beer and wine, but, but just socially. Well, and the hard stuff only when you mix it with orange juice or cranberry juice, because then you can't taste it, and it's got vitamins. <laughs> Eight. You dutifully wait until after sundown on Saturday, before you head out to the multiplex to see Twilight in IMAX. 3D. Nine, you go out to lunch after the Sabbath church service because surely God would not want you to starve. And what they've got at potluck isn't nearly as good as those garlic breadsticks. And ten, this is the last one. You go to church most weeks because you want your kids to have exposure to the faith, even though you don't have any personal investment in it. These are just examples, but they should give you an idea of what we're talking about. Does any of this sound familiar? Of course not you. Of course not you. But perhaps a, a, a friend or a family member, a classmate, maybe a church member. Well, I have good news and I have bad news. Which do you want first? Thank you, because that's the way I wrote it. The bad news is that untreated, congenital Christianity leads to eternal death 100% of the time. The bad news is that while the disease is passed down, the cure is not. You cannot be saved by your parents' faith. The bad news is that you must affirmatively choose to be cured. This won't just get better. That's the bad news. But who wants the good news? All right, 30 of us want the good news. <laughs> Amen. The good news is that there is a cure, and I stand before you today as living proof. I testify to you that I have been cured by the love of Jesus and the power of the everlasting gospel. The good news is that if God could save a wretch like me, he can surely save you. And the good news is that it's not too late. It's not too late for you. Even if you've been suffering under the lukewarm, putrefying malaise of congenital Christianity for years or even decades, it is not too late for you. God can still reach down from His throne and touch your heart and turn it from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. I know that He can do this for you because He did it for me. My story begins three generations ago in the early 1900s when my great-grandfather was the second ever ordained Korean Seventh-day Adventist pastor. His son, my grandfather, also entered the pastoral ministry, and he became the first native Korean to become president of the Korean Union Conference. His son, my father, did not enter the pastoral ministry but he attended Seventh-day Adventist schools all his life until medical school, at which point he scored number one in the entire country on the medical board exams that year, all the while skipping class on Saturdays, observing the Sabbath in a country which required going to class on Saturdays. And you know Koreans know how to study. <laughs> so being number one in Korea on the medical board exams, that means something. And that's where I come in. I was, just, I was just four months old when my father, mother, 
two suitcases, and a baby showed up in Boston to pursue his residency. So while I'm a 1.5 generation Korean American, I'm a fourth generation Seventh-day Adventist Christian. My roots in the faith, my faith has been passed down to me from its earliest days in Korea. And while many blessings come from having this history in the church, it also comes with it a predisposition towards congenital Christianity. My earliest spiritual memory goes back to when I was just four years old. I would walk downstairs early on Sunday mornings while my parents still slept to watch TV. And it didn't take me long to notice that it seemed every channel I turned to on Sunday mornings would be playing a broadcasting a church service. And I was totally confused by that because even at that age of four, I knew that Saturday is the Sabbath. So it didn't take long for me before I decided that I would get to the bottom of this. So I walked into the kitchen to ask my mother. And I said, Amma, why are all these people going to church on Sunday? Don't they know that Saturday is the Sabbath? Now, before I tell you what happened, I have to give you some context. My mother is a godly woman. She is a prayer warrior, a church planter, a Bible worker amongst the Korean immigrant community. I thank the, the Lord for my mother's faith. But at the time of this event, she was in a different place spiritually. And so back to the kitchen. Four years old, I walk into the kitchen. Amma is doing sargoji. She's doing the dishes. I ask her, Amma, why are these people going to church on Sunday? Don't they know that Saturday is the Sabbath? And she says to me something to the effect of, Mola. <laughs> I don't know. And that was the end of that. But my mother's voice is much higher than mine. <laughs> I don't know. And left it at that. Now, I don't know why she said that to me. Maybe she was too busy. After all, she was a young mother of a four-year-old and a two-year-old boy. That's probably a pretty busy gig. So maybe she was too busy. Maybe she didn't know what to say. Maybe she thought I wouldn't understand an explanation. I don't know what the reason was. All I know is that I walked away from that conversation completely confused and scratching my head. One of the primary risk factors for congenital Christianity is confusion. From my earliest childhood experience, I was confused and I did not receive proper instruction in the home. This is why the Lord, in his divine wisdom, told us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you sit down, and when you rise up. That is Bible language for all the time. If you leave your children confused, even when they're in kindergarten, or beginners, or, or primary, if you leave your children confused, you increase their risk of congenital Christianity. You may think that they're too young to care or that they're not paying attention, but they are paying attention much more than you know. And you have the opportunity to give them a firm foundation, age-appropriate, Bible-centered foundation, or leave them dangerously on shifting sands of confusion. The ensuing years of my childhood and adolescence read like a textbook case of congenital Christianity. In the sixth grade, I was pulled out of our Seventh-day Adventist schools for two reasons. 
The first reason was the excessive PDAs on the part of the high school kids at the co-located academy. I'm not talking about personal digital assistants. <laughs> iPhones are not the problem. The problem was public displays of affection. And it had gotten to the point where my parents no longer felt comfortable having their sixth grade and fourth grade sons attending that school. So that was the first reason. The second reason was the academics. I was becoming bored in the classroom. I needed more challenge. And so from the sixth grade through high school, I was pulled out and put into the public schools, which was quite good for me academically, but my faith was under assault from all sides continually. Specifically, my faith was under assault from the curriculum, the extracurriculars, and the peer pressure. Let's talk about each one. First, the curriculum. The curriculum was 100% secular and humanistic. From English literature to biology, wherever I turned, the curriculum was lifting up humanistic ideas and tearing down God. Now, don't get me wrong. I have a passion for witnessing to the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. We talked about that this morning, and we're going to talk about that more this afternoon. As missionaries to this group, we need to be able to understand that culture and to speak that language. Yet, exposure to these worldviews can be dangerous if you are not firmly grounded in the reality of God and the truth of His Word. By beholding, you become changed. And if all you're beholding is Darwin, Kant, Rousseau, and Richard Dawkins, and you're not beholding Moses, Daniel, John, Paul, and the others, then you will be changed. At a minimum, you set yourself up for confusion. And more likely than not, you'll end up in outright apostasy or even atheism. And I'm sure we all know people who have gone down that road. So that was the curriculum. But beyond the curriculum were the extracurricular activities. Whether sports, clubs, arts, or even academics, it seemed that everything conflicted with the Sabbath. And my unconverted heart struggled greatly with this because I wanted to achieve great things in this world. And I thought in order to achieve, I needed the, the, uh, the approval of this world. Worldly recognition rather than relying on the mighty right arm of the Lord. In my case, I was gaining success as a cellist. I was one of the best in the state of California, and I was considering cello performance as a career. One of the key parts of establishing a track record in music is the competition circuit. But time after time after time, I had to decline participation because of the Sabbath. And it was an excruciating struggle in my teenage mind. And this struggle was compounded by the fact that there were members of our own Seventh-day Adventist church who were encouraging me to compete. I'll never forget one Sabbath afternoon, a sweet old, older woman, she was one of the pillars of our church and a strong supporter of the local music scene, when she took me aside after the sermon in the afternoon and said to me, David, it would be okay if you competed on the Sabbath. She knew of my talent. She knew of my talent. She said, it would be okay if you competed on the Sabbath for two reasons. One, you were playing good classical music. And that's a whole other sermon. <laughs> but she said it would be okay because I'm playing classical music. And two, because I would be glorifying God with my talent. I'm convinced that she meant well. I, I believe in my heart of hearts that she meant well. But this well-intentioned church member was causing even more confusion for me. 
and setting me up for compromise and ultimately full-blown congenital Christianity. We would do well to recall Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him or her if a millstone were hung around her neck and she were plunged and drowned in the depths of the sea. You don't have to be blood-related to someone to inflame their congenital Christianity. You can even be a well-meaning church member. But be careful, because you may make yourself a contributing factor to someone else's congenital Christianity, and Lord have mercy on you if you do this. So we've talked about the curriculum and how it undermined my faith. We've talked about the extracurriculars and how it created conflict in my heart. But the third force, the most powerful force, assaulting my faith through my formative years was the peer pressure. Beginning in the sixth grade, through my peers, I was exposed to the range of filth and wickedness that we unfortunately consider a normal part of growing up. Between the school bus, the sleepover, the field trip, the cafeteria, the popular media, and various and sundry other settings, wherever I turned, Satan was there to teach me what things are pleasurable and desirable and required for social standing, required for emotional fulfillment, required for physical gratification, and ultimately required for happiness. I'm being a little bit delicate here because this is a G-rated sermon. But I hope you understand what I mean. In fact, from all I can gather from the news and the media today, it's even worse. Not a day goes by when there's not another sensational, salacious news story about what some young people did, who they did it to, when, where, and how often. In the locker room, in the dorm, in the frat house, on a webcam, with a cell phone, on Facebook. Of course, there are exceptions. But for every young person who has managed to navigate the peer pressure and emerge unscathed, an untold multiple of that number see, hear, touch, taste, and inhale substances, images, media, and have many other experiences, myriad experiences, which will leave deep mental, emotional, and even physical scars for the rest of their lives. There may be some of you right here in this room who know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been there. You've done that. And you walk through life bearing the guilt, shame, and fear of what you've been through. Satan uses these experiences and emotions to make you wonder if God is even there. And if He's there, if He even cares. Or if He cares, if He's even capable of delivering you from this body of death. Satan infiltrates your thinking and may even push you to the point where you would wish that God did not exist, where you would kill God in your own mind. Because if God did exist, and if he were, if he were as pure and holy and just as the Bible says he is, then you would surely be destined for nothing other than eternal loss. And so you decide that you're going to take that point of view. It was with this mindset that I limped my way through high school. All this hurt, shame, and conflicted emotion hidden behind a facade of perfect grades, 
musical accolades, and admission to world-class schools like Stanford University and the Eastman School of Music. I was chasing the world and doing extremely well by its standards. But all the while I was ambivalent towards God, resentful towards His church, and completely spiritually ungrounded, cast adrift in a sea of secularism. Against this backdrop, I went off to the Eastman School of Music. And like any freshman, I was looking for a sense of affiliation and belonging. And one of the places that I went to get this sense of affiliation and belonging was the local chapter of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Of course, there wasn't an Adventist group on campus, but that really didn't matter to me because other than Sabbath-keeping, I, I really didn't understand that there was any difference. I'll never forget the first Bible study that I attended. There were about 10 of us there. It was led by a senior. His name was Drew, a French horn player. And we went around the group introducing ourselves. Name, where you're from, what you're studying, and a little bit about your spiritual background. So when it came to me, a dialogue ensued, and it went a little something like this. Hi, my name's David Kim. I'm from San Luis Obispo, California, and I'm here studying cello performance. And my spiritual background is Seventh-day Adventist. And uh, Drew says to me, oh, Seventh-day Adventist, that's interesting. Um, what, how did that happen? How did you become a Seventh-day Adventist? And I said to him, well, I, my, my family's Seventh-day Adventist. I, I grew up in that church. And I also think it's pretty clear from the Bible that Saturday is, is the day of worship, the, the seventh day. And Drew says to me, Huh, oh, well, what about Colossians 2.16? And I looked at him blankly. And I said, Colossians, you're going to have to help me out with that. What, what, what is Colossians 2.16? And he says to me, well, come on, let's, let's look it up together. Let's read it together. And I walked right into his trap. So I said, okay, well, I, you know, I knew the Bible well enough to know that Colossians was in the New Testament. You can go there with me, Colossians 2.16. It's in the New Testament. And uh, I have an acronym uh, to tell me where it is. Go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go eat popcorn. So Colossians 2.16. So let's go there together give you a sense of what it was like for me. So we went there. I said, go ahead, David, read it. So I read it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink. Okay, so now I'm thinking about bacon again. No, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath? Is that what, does your Bible say Sabbath? Does your Bible say Sabbath? My Bible says Sabbath too. So I read that, and Drew looks at me and says, right. So by being so focused on keeping the Sabbath, you guys are just being legalists. Jesus freed us from the law. I will never forget that moment. I was mortified. I was horrified. I'd never seen that verse in my life. And I had no clue what to think. You would think that someone who was a fourth generation Seventh-day Adventist, grandson of the president of the Korean Union Conference, would understand the difference between ceremonial Sabbaths and the Sabbath of the Fourth Commandment. 
But as you just heard, I did not receive proper instruction in the home. And by the way, if you don't understand what I just said, you need to go talk to Kurt. <laughs> and so I felt confused, betrayed, and humiliated. I never went back to that Bible study and I checked out of church completely. My congenital Christianity had metastasized. And while I never gave up on the idea of God, I had no idea who he was. I had no idea which church was the right one. I had no idea what to believe. I was spiritually bewildered, and I completely left. The next 14 years were a blur. I was in hot pursuit of worldly success, and I was succeeding. Over that period of time, I earned my bachelor's and master's degree from top music schools with scholarships. I performed all over the world at some of the most prestigious uh, venues under world-class conductors and orchestras. I earned an MBA from one of the top programs in the world, and I worked in some of the most prestigious companies in capitalism. On the personal front, I married my beautiful wife, who unfortunately is not here today, and my, I had two lovely children. I felt like I had achieved the American dream. While my house did not have a white picket fence, I did have a solar-heated swimming pool. And given the choice, I'll take the pool. <laughs> Over the year, years, the Lord had pulled me back into the church. I, was, I, I met my wife in church in Chicago, and I was serving as an elder in California, where we moved uh, for, for business school and then after that. But I was not yet heart converted. I was still just as prideful and covetous and ambitious for worldly things as ever. My theology and my lifestyle were a mess. God in church was something I did for my children, just in case, just in case it was true. But I was consumed with the world. To top it off, all off, I had been diagnosed with a degenerative bone condition in both of my hips, and I was suffering through multiple unsuccessful surgeries. For the better part of 10 years, I walked with a combination of crutches, canes, and pain. But I don't have these today, praise the Lord. Amen. But at the time, as far as I could tell, God was leaving me on my own to suffer through this. And I was angry at him. Yet through all this, God was trying to reach me. There would be times at church when I would hear a song or a testimony or something in the sermon. And my heart would be touched and my eyes would become wet with tears. But in those moments, I would just quickly wipe those away as inconspicuously as possible because I didn't want anyone to know what God was doing in my life. I didn't want to admit it myself. I knew the Holy Spirit was trying to reach me, but I refused to yield. I was still too proud, too angry, too consumed by the world, and I didn't know God, much less trust Him. I didn't understand the Bible I didn't understand its message. It didn't make any sense to me. I was congenitally Christian, but my heart was unconverted. It was in this spiritual context that I was sitting in a church board meeting. Yes, this congenital Christian was serving as an elder on the church board. It was spring of 2008, and we were talking about putting on the first evangelistic series in over a decade at this church. And the pastor was talking about how all the members needed to show up and attend all the meetings to support the meetings. And I remember thinking to myself, 
So what you're saying is you want us to be at church five nights per week for five weeks? To listen to preaching? Seriously? Who has time for that? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll come on the weekends. Well, I'll definitely come on the Sabbath parts of the weekends, like Friday night. and Well, I'll definitely come on Saturday. But the rest of the day, come on, I'm, I'm too busy for that. I tell you what, I'll, I'll write a check. I'll write a check. That's how I'll support the meetings. I'm all about writing the check. Little did I know that God had other plans for me. Come November of 2008, not only was I not busy at work, I had been told that I needed to find a new job, which came as a total shock because things were going well. But I, like many others, had been caught in the undertow of the global financial crisis. So the bad news was that I had to look for a job during one of the worst financial crises in history. But the good news was that I had plenty of time to attend the meetings. <laughs> and I praise the Lord, I thank God for that opportunity to hear the entire gospel message in a systematic way as the evangelist unfolded the message, step by step, night after night, I could see for the first time the logic, coherence, and reliability of the Bible and our gospel message. For the first time, I could cut through all the cliches and phrases and assumptions that we tie up with our Christian faith, and I could see that the Bible could be trusted. I could see why an all-powerful and all-loving God would allow evil and suffering to exist for a season. I could see the physics of salvation. Why Jesus had to die and what that has to do with me. I could see that God has shown us everything we need to know to get us from here to the second coming and through eternity in his prophetic word if only we would read it. And I could see that all the do's and don'ts that we commonly associate with God's law and his commandments and even things like the health message it's not because God is picky and arbitrary and mean. It's because God is preparing us for a literal eternity in which we live in His direct presence. That's why. For the first time, God was real to me. Because for the first time, He made perfect sense. I'll never forget how I felt sitting in that hall looking up at the PowerPoint and realizing for the very first time that the 70-week prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 perfectly foretold the beginning of Christ's ministry at his baptism in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. And if you don't understand what I just said, again, go talk to Kurt about it. I had two immediate thoughts. The first thought was, wow, this is really true. And my second thought was, well, if this is true, I better do something about it. And my life has never been the same. The Lord put me on the road to recovery from congenital Christianity, and I've never looked back. Amen. The next month was GYC in San Jose, and I took that opportunity to become a local bus guide. And it was a small step. For the, for the outreach. And it was a small step, but a big step for me because I had never done anything evangelistic in my entire life. 
but I thought I could handle being a local bus guide. Has anyone here ever been a local bus guide for GYC? Yeah, a couple people over here. Well, what's kind of different about being the local bus guide at GYC is that unlike the canvassers, you don't actually get off the bus to knock on an actual door. Your job is to make sure that the bus goes and picks up and drops off in the right place. So I thought I could handle that. And in fact, I did. I survived that intact. And I started looking for other opportunities, other ways to learn how I can share my faith. I attended AFCO, Amazing Facts, AFCO to Go, which is a four-day program where I learned how to give personal Bible studies. And I accompanied my church's Bible worker to follow up on leads and give Bible studies after GYC. On the job front, God was faithful. In the midst of the worst job market in at least a generation, if not more, I received not just one, not just two, not just three, not just four, not just five, but six excellent job opportunities, one of which brought me to the Philadelphia area where I am today. And as I embarked on a new job in a new place where I didn't know anybody, it's almost as if God gave me a new opportunity, a clean sheet opportunity to start my life again. And I resolved in my heart, I resolved in my heart that I would bring everything together, my personal, my professional, my faith, bring it all together in service of his glory. And it has made all the difference. Today I have a regular devotional life on a level of depth and consistency, which I've never had before. In particular, I am praying more than I ever have before. When I was a congenital Christian, I struggled to pray for more than a minute or maybe two minutes. And I'm not even counting like, thank you for this food. I, I, it was just a struggle. I didn't pray effectively. I didn't pray. But as my walk with the Lord has deepened, he's built it out. It started at five minutes and it grew to 10, 15, and even now 30 minutes or more, I will spend on my knees with the Lord in prayer. The Lord is teaching me how to praise him like David did in the Psalms. The Lord is teaching me how to confess specific sins so that I daily confront the darkness of my heart and that I need Jesus. There are sins which, and this, this has so many benefits. One of the benefits is there are sins that I used to have to confess all the time, which by the grace of God have gone away. Amen. Amen. And there are also sins that I used to have to confess all the time, which I still have to confess all the time. <laughs> but it shows me, it shows me what things are most deeply seated in my heart. But I praise the Lord for the change. He is making me a new person. The Lord is teaching me how to pray for others. Intercessory prayer gets us out of our own selfishness and puts us in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed for us. The Lord has also given me the boldness to have spiritual conversations with everyone around me. He has taught me how to approach these conversations in a really natural, easy way. I have been having a dozen or more, or more of these spiritual conversations per week 
with people in my sphere of influence. Some of these spiritual conversations turned into Bible studies. Over the last few years, the Lord has given me the opportunity to study with a wide range of backgrounds and education, including atheists, agnostics, Buddhists, evangelicals, or PhDs, MBAs, lawyers, and others. As a result of these experiences, I've founded the Nicodemus Society, which I think you've received some information about and you'll learn more about if you come this afternoon. It's a ministry focused on reaching the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. The Lord has also changed my family life. I used to rush out the door in the morning before the kids were out of bed and stumble back in in the evening after they were already asleep. Today, we gather every morning for family worship, for family prayer. And every night I come home and we have family worship together. The Lord has continued to deepen my appreciation for what it means to be a godly husband and a godly father. He has taught me how to pray every morning that I would love my wife as Christ loves the church, being willing to give myself for her and treat her as a member of my own body. God is so merciful and good. I'm so thankful that he reached my heart while my children were still young. By God's grace, my congenital Christianity stops with me. I'm by no means perfect, but I'm better than I used to be. And by the grace of God, I'll be more like Jesus every day. Day by day, from faith to faith, and from glory to glory. So what about you? What about you? Are you suffering from congenital Christianity? Is your religious experience dry, formulaic, and barren? Do you feel as if your path in Adventism and Christianity were passed down to you by a genealogical heritage from your parents or your grandparents? Or perhaps you came later to the faith, but you've lost your first love. I have good news for you. Because you have the opportunity, indeed you have the obligation, to make your own decision for Christ, your own decision for revival. You cannot be saved by your parents' faith. You cannot be saved by your husband or your wife's faith. You cannot be saved by your graduating class. Southern can give you a degree, but it cannot give you salvation. The choice is up to you. The cure is readily available to you. Jesus is waiting for you. He is at the door. He wants to come in. He wants to reach down and destroy that congenital Christianity coursing through your veins and replace it with His saving blood. Jesus knows your heart. He knows your confusions, your hurts, your guilt. He knows your shame. He knows your resentment. He knows all these things. But He still wants you. You felt Him tugging at your heart. You felt a desire to respond to His precious gift if only you could believe. If, if only you could see past. If you could only break through those barriers which are holding you back from your Lord and Savior. And so I want to make 
a few appeals. The first question I have for you this morning is, can you relate to my experience of congenital Christianity? If you can relate to my experience of congenital Christianity, I would ask you to raise your hand right where you are. If you can relate to my experience of congenital Christianity, I would ask you to raise your hand right where you are. Keep it up. Keep your hand up. If you've ever felt congenital Christianity in your life, then keep it up. God bless you for making that admission. My second appeal is a very specific one. And that is, if you believe that you are uh, currently suffering from congenital Christianity, if you are in the grips of this dead, dread disease today, then I would ask you, I would implore you to stand up right now where you're at and acknowledge before God that you suffer from congenital Christianity. Don't worry about who's around you. Don't think about that. But if you are suffering from congenital Christianity today, I'm begging you to stand up and acknowledge before your Lord that you have this disease because you can't be cured until you acknowledge it. Praise the Lord and stay standing. My third and final appeal is a very specific one. For those of you who have acknowledged before heaven and earth that you suffer from congenital Christianity today, if you are willing today to resolve and confess before your Lord and Savior that you no longer want this disease, if you today want Jesus Christ to reach down, touch your heart, and make it new, then I would beg you, I would plead with you to come forward, to come forward for a special prayer. Come forward and acknowledge before Jesus Christ who died for you that you no longer want this disease. You've been suffering under it for years or even decades. Those of you who are standing, you've already said that you have it. And I am inviting you to tell God, I don't want it anymore. I don't want it anymore. If that's you, come up. Come up for a special prayer of dedication. Come forward. We need more space. Press all the way to the front. Press all the way to the front. There's plenty of room. If you want to say before God, that you don't want your congenital Christianity anymore. You've been there. You've done that. You've had your feet straddling between God and the world for decades. And come forward. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, our Father, we are but dust. We are but dust, yet you are so merciful. You're so merciful. You saved me from my congenital Christianity. 
And Lord, you can see your other children here. They have stood. They have come forward. And they are acknowledging to you not only that they have this disease, but more importantly, that they want you to change them. And so, Lord, I pray that this would not be just one token. It's an important token, but it's, at this point, it's merely a token of their desire to follow you completely with all their hearts. I pray, Lord, that this token would be emblematic of a deeper spiritual conviction and desire to be fully recreated, to be made new. I pray, Lord, that through this church and through other programs at college and and wherever they are, that they would start to plug in, that they would look deeper, that we would dig deeper in our spiritual lives, that we would get up in the morning and dedicate our lives to you first thing. Lord, it is such a blessing. It is such a blessing that you are so merciful to us. And Lord, I pray for each and every one of these people that this would be the beginning, the first day of their eternal life, their eternal walk with you. Lord, we pray this in the powerful, precious, and loving name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot audioverse.org.